Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Hey, Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Okay, um, right, so today we're talking about some neural mechanisms, uh, depending on how many things you've taken with me, you'll see some of this stuff before we start. So, um, yeah, today we'll talk about like said, neural mechanisms and kind of like brain behavior. Uh, of course, we have Pinky in the brain. And then we have two pictures from the worst Star Trek episode ever. Spock's brain. Just the worst episode ever, ever made. Where people come down out of nowhere, kidnap Spark from the bridge, remove his brain to run their planet. Horrible. It's the horrible season three of the original series. Uh, Here's the woman that does the operation, but it's so—it's the most sexist episode of the original Star Trek ever. And I mean, that's saying something because you know, women walking in short skirts and to get into Starfleet, you have to be chesty. Um, they're all stupid until they put the teacher on their head, and then they can put his brain back. And Kirk shows up. Oh, there's no man. There's only women. And he says, "Where are your leaders? Where are the men?" Wow. <laughs> and that's when. McCoy puts that back on and he says, I can't believe it, Jim, it's so simple, it's child's play. And then Rex is brain to that, it's monster. So just don't watch that one. Skip through really all of season three of the original series. It's, it's horrible. Until Voyager comes along, which is worse than everything from season three of the original series. Um, so behaviors up the nervous system and the brain, obviously, and they, well, the nervous, yeah. there are some things that are pretty simple. Behaviors that are, you know, spinal reflexes, things like that. But things that are a little more interesting to us are going to be controlled pretty much in the brain. Evolution acts on the phenotype. The phenotype in our case here is going to be the behavior, right? So the phenotype is the behavior, and behavior is the output of the brain. So it follows, and then evolution acts on the brain. But it's going to act on, remember how evolution acts. It doesn't care about mechanisms so much. Evolution is going to act on the function. So what did the, whatever it was, accomplish? What did the, um, whatever special behavior that some animal does. And you can think about us and, 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 and language. You can think about and we'll talk today about the more uh, detailed examples about the food storing and the covers that I talked about. Okay. So evolution's going to act in the brain, but it's acting indirectly because it's going through what the behavior is. So if evolution, say in human history, was selecting for the ability to speak, there's not only having a larynx, right, and the kind of vocal cord kind of you know, equipment that we have that makes such a wide range of sounds that has to be selected for, but it's also the cognitive part, the thinking. Now, this is direct, right, right on to the, it's like, well, makes the right sounds. Whereas for the cognitive part, evolution has to act on the behavior, 
But that behavior is driven by having a more and more developed Broca's area and invariant area. The parts of the, of the brain that control speech and receive speech. Okay? So that just makes sense. I hope that makes sense. Okay, some key terms. A lot of you have taken brain behavior before, so I'll um, go through this pretty quickly. A neuron is just basically a brain cell, like a nerve cell, the one that does the communication, right? And stores information. Um, when a, a neuron fires, it's called an action potential. Okay, so an action potential basically is just when a neuron is on. Neurons are either on or off. They aren't kind of firing. They're either firing or they're not firing. Now you've got to remember something. Even when neurons are not firing, they're using really a lot of energy. And I'm not going to go into great detail about what an action potential is. I can, I can go into like a five-minute little version of what it is. What you basically have is, you know, this isn't, actually, you know, I can almost use that graph. Uh, I can almost use that graph. But if we've got, and neurons are not circular, okay, so this is more of a representational thing. Do the free-form thing, man. So you've got to keep a charge in here. You've got to keep a negative charge in here. Okay? So for every positive in here, there are three positives out here, giving you a net negative charge. Okay? So, and those of you who think right, behavior notes with sodium and potassium, and then there's also chlorine that plays a role. We don't have to worry too much about that in this class. Those of you who are in brain behavior now will be worrying about that shortly. But it's not like, remember back in uh, probably biology in, in high school, even you talked about semi permeable membranes, things like that, or, or, or really permeable membranes. So by fusion, you get an equal concentration of anything on either side of the membrane. That's not how neurons work. They actually keep more positives out than they have in, more positive ions. So even, and it's not going to fire here, it only fires when it's a net positive charge inside. Okay, so it's a net negative charge. It's not firing, but it's like it's a drawn bow. Okay, so it's ready to fire. It's ready to fire. It just hasn't fired yet. And if you've ever played with a with a bow and arrow, right? So you ever draw back? That takes quite a bit of energy. It's actually a pretty decent analogy. So it takes a lot of energy to not fire a neuron. So even not firing it. takes a lot of glucose and oxygen. If that's the case, if these things are so damn expensive to maintain, which they are, the most expensive organ in your body to maintain it was a human, and almost a lot of other animals, part metabolically, is your brain. So if you're not using it, you may as well lose it. There's going to be selection against it. If it's doing nothing, there's going to be selection against it. And you know, we only use 10% of the brain. That's not true. Next time someone says that to you, ask them what 90% they would like removed. <laughs> so you can see then that evolution is going to act pretty quickly likely on brains because we have something that's very difficult to maintain. Um, the most important neurons typically are interneurons. That's what does all the thinking, if you want to call it that. We got sensory neurons, they're getting information in. Motor neurons are taking information out. Let's 
uncover both of those as well. Um, motor neurons are what moves you. You being a rat, you being a person, you being a nematode. Sensory neurons are what brings information in, but the vast majority of neurons are interneurons. It's what's doing the integration, as we call it, in sort of cognitive neuroscience. It's what does representation. So if you think about something, all the knowledge you've got in your life, that's all stored in interneurons. Some pattern of activation in interneurons. Right, so if I ask you what's the capital of Vietnam, you say Hanoi, that's somehow stored in there. Okay. Or what kind of, uh, think about a, a bird like a, 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 a herring gull. I should go after that egg that's rolling away. What kind of egg should I go after? As round as possible with blue dots. And that's just represented in the nervous system, in the brain. Okay. So it's mostly interneurons that do most of this sort of representation stuff. We can talk about receptors for individual senses. These can be like light receptors right in your eye. You have receptors for sound. You have receptors for various smells. You have receptors for taste. When I'm saying you here, I mean any animal. Well, 30 degrees of fish don't have receptors for light. Then there's also the idea of receptors. Those are receptor cells. Then there are receptor sites on neurons. And that's where neurotransmitters bind to. And they eventually, and for this class, you have to worry anymore about this. If you're very behavior, you'll worry about this shortly. That's what changes the charge from positive to negative, or negative to positive. about that, most of you know these terms. Good stuff. So some examples. Of course, you know, I was going to talk about lots of bats. However, it's not just me who thinks this is cool. This is the graph of the number of citations. This is in tens, I believe, of citations that this thing gets every year. So it's not just me that thinks this is cool. It's still getting cited 50, 60 times a year, which is great. This guy made a career with his mods and his bats. Okay. So you know the moth and bat story, and we're going to go through it pretty quickly. There's your moth, the noctoid moth. Basically, has two sensory neurons doing this. An A1 neuron, it's called an A2 neuron. Um, and it works like our eardrum. This tympanic membrane. Uh, there's these air sacs here in the way. A lot of what's happening inside an animal that has to fly, there's a lot of empty space. You know, the same, yeah, but this is interesting, sort of, we have these air sacs here, there's nothing in them, it's just a big bulk in the animal. The same thing, think about animal, uh, bird bones. They're hollow. And what if we're brittle with, say, a mammal bone? Well, the animal has to be able to fly. Okay. This tympanic, tympanic membrane, basically, this is right on the side of the animal, it's right about here. The side of their thorax is where they have their ears. Okay. And we have these two receptor cells. You see they are here, A1 and A2. 
And they're not frequency sensitive, but they respond to low, but they don't respond to low frequency. So this should tell you something that a moth cannot tell the difference between moths or bats or anything. Because it would have to do that by frequency. You and I can tell the difference between a low frequency and a high one. <laughs> Closest I'm never going to come to singing. <laughs> um, I'm putting singing in air quotes, which I hate. The singing in air quotes. Both. I hate me singing and I hate air quotes. Ridiculous. Just say it's like emoticons. If you can't write clearly enough that someone thinks that you're kidding, don't write. You know, when you read Stephen Leacock, great humorist, did he put emoticons at the end of every sentence? No, you knew he was kidding. Anyway, it's up there with people having to end every every post they do anywhere and anything with wall. <laughs> Were you actually laughing out loud? Because if you're not, you're a liar. Damn internet. Anyway, so low frequencies, high frequencies, it's not sensitive to low frequencies, and by low here we mean really, really pretty high. Their threshold is 100,000 hertz. Ours is 20. Our upper threshold is 20,000, and I bet no one in this room can hear about 20,000. I can hear about 18,000. We live in Western industrialized society, and we actually put things in our ears to listen to stuff. So we wreck our ears. Moths, on the other hand, their low threshold is 100,000. You know, people say, so high a dog can hear it. A dog can't hear the the lowest sound a moth hears. So now I don't need it so high when the moths can hear it. Start using that as an expression. But you know what makes things that, you know, bats with the sonar, mm-hmm, they send out sonar pulses, right? You know that? And they can actually paint as, as rich a picture with <coughs> Sound and the the speed that it reflects back at, as we can with our eyes. There's other animals like this as well that can do this with sound, but not this. Basically, what bats are doing is what's called, if you were in a submarine, active sonar. They're sending up pings. Um, owls can hear so well that they can actually pretty much paint a picture as rich as our visual picture just by listening. Uh, it's a great story Jerry Frost told, who's a, or was a prophet of Queens, and it's this wonderful story of doing single cell recording, single cell recording in, in, a, in an hour. And in his lab, a graduate student has an electrode placed across a single cell in the cortical region of an owl that has, that does hear. <coughs> okay. So we just try, what they're just trying to do is get, just do some single cell recording, like this was done, this was done with single cell recording. So you have this sound, well every time the thing fires, you hear a click. And actually you hear an audible click, because there would be a, a it would break, it would uh, cause a circuit to close. 
and you actually get a little pen move. You see that in a second. The graph that was as soon as now it's like a computer, but you actually typically people write the software and you still hear the click because that's what everybody's used to. So you're hearing this click in a little speaker. Click, 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 click. And you're thinking, oh well, we found a cell, but it's firing, and it's firing too regularly to be random firing because all the cells will fire sometimes out of nowhere. There must be some piece of equipment that's on that the owl's hearing. We, we want to find out what this thing is actually sensitive to, so let's turn stuff off. So they, start, they turn off all the equipment in the lab. And the owl's in a soundproof chamber. Click, 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 click. It's a telltale owl. Anyone? Let's <laughs> about that. It's good. Um, and they couldn't figure out what it was. The graduate student leaves the lab, comes back, and sees that when, when I think it's she, when she was gone, there was no firing. But now it's firing more quickly. Click, 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 click. Because she ran down the hall to go get somebody to see the wrong equipment. Came back, her heart was beating faster. It was detecting her heartbeat in a soundproof room that she wasn't in. Owls hear really well. <laughs> You take a little message. So the thing about owls is they're doing it through, well, again, if you were watching you know, The Hunt for Red October, which you should, this is the, one of the greatest movies ever, they're, it's passive sonar. It's just listening. Bats do active sonar. They send out pings. Okay? So that's the difference there. So basically, we've got a pretty simple setup. We've got a muscle cell. And we've got an ear, and it hooks up to a muscle. There is no interneuron. There's a few interneurons here. There's three, two of them. Oh yeah. Okay. So you got two interneurons. So you can see this ear is pretty specialized. It's not for moths to have conversations. It's a bat detection mechanism. If it was the old 60s TV show, it would say bat detector on the side of it. That's my old show. I love that show. When I was a kid, I was honest, of course, I thought it was serious because I was three. I never understood my parents were always laughing at it. But this is intense, Dad. Why are you laughing? The penguin has Batman suspended over a thing of dry ice. He might die. Same back time, same back channel. <laughs> so, here I'm talking about random neural firing. See? <coughs> here's some. It's not regular. There's three here, then there's in the same space, only one. That does happen. You get random firing. Again, these things are constantly trying to not fire, and sometimes the mechanisms break down in essence. So, we've got the A1 receptor. This is held out of the sound areas. And the louder the sound is, the more firing. Okay? And then we got the A2 receptor. Nothing, nothing, a whole lot. Okay? So A1 is responsive to intensity. That's the loudness. <coughs> so it's more firing with closer bats. That's the important thing here. This single neuron is actually encoding, and it's... it's in proportion to the distance, so to the loudness. So it's actually encoding the distance for the animal's nervous system. It's encoding the distance that the bat is away. Right? Isn't that neat? 
A2 only fires with very loud sounds. You know, so again, if you want to talk about like if you like the submarine movies, things like that, that's the proximity alarm. That's the evasive maneuvers. And the neat thing is it's it's only at pulses, eh? Well, bats send out pulses of sound because you have to send this the pulse out and have it bounce back to hear how long we talked about that to see how far away an object is. Bats are so good at doing this, you can take bats and put them in a completely light tight room. So it's completely dark, and they'll catch bugs. They'll actually be able to catch bugs in midair. You'll let some flies loose, and the, the bats just catch them. You might think, well, that's pretty impressive, but how do we know that they're sitting, that, that, that they're doing this through sort of this active process? Well, because they could be hearing the things that just flap their wings. Well, why don't we bring up some piano wire? And that's what was done in the 50s when people figured out that bats were using sonar. I bet the guy that discovered this, which is kind of a neat moment here, like, you're that guy with the piano wire. <laughs> awesome. And the bats just avoided. They just fly around, no problem. Well, they keep catching bugs, but they fly around avoiding piano wire, something that thin. Okay? So bats are pretty impressive animals. Right? They can, you know, you and I can probably detect what, if we're thinking about sounds bouncing back, let's say a tenth of a second. It's not one second, so let's make it a tenth of a second. We'll do it by orders of magnitude. We can't do a hundredth of a second, there's no way. I can easily do a tenth of uh, a hundredth, or sorry, a second of, of an echo. I can't do a hundredth, so let's just say it's point one. Um, typically, a bat. Do this. That's pretty good. Right? So you can see, they can see with sound that they're in So if you're the number one prey in a certain kind of bat, you better be able to detect it, and evolution better select that pretty damn quickly, or you will die. You will not be passing on those genes. So what happens in the nice little graph here, or chart rather, or whatever the picture, or as they call them today, the internet, infographic. Remember they used to just call them pictures? <laughs> what happened to that word? Picture. Or graph, or chart, no, infographic. There's a lot of stuff on the internet that's a complete scam, and people take it so seriously. Anyway, okay. So... Wants making noise, beat this wing faster than that wing, so I'm beating at the same speed and I fly away. <clears throat> Yay! The moth is doing a course correction 180 degrees away from the back. A relative 180 degrees. <clears throat> That's pretty cool. And if you don't think this is cool, you don't really know what cool is. Because <laughs> this is really pretty neat. Because this is something basically being done with a almost the simplest possible neural network. A2 basically turns off inhibition in the nervous system. So you get random just flailing. Moth is very close, bat's very close to the moth, the moth just keeps beating its wings all over the place. 
The same way your nervous system, a lot of what it's doing, you being you, you being a rat, you being a chicken, when you cut its head off, there's no inhibition, the chicken still runs around. <coughs> Flapping wings. It's so with you, by the way, but you know, we don't, well, in Canada, we don't execute anyone. Um, they don't use guillotines anymore, most places. Though, anyway, I'm just going to go into a rant about capital punishment. I probably shouldn't. Um, most of you never seen a chicken with its head cut off because most of us get our dead chicken at the store. Um, but you may have this kid pull the legs off of daddy long legs. <coughs> and all the guys are nodding. Because every guy's done this. All girls are thinking guys are idiots. Because it's true. Try taking them back on you. That's excellent. That's great. That's like McCoy trying to put Spock's brain back in. I just don't have the skills, Jim. You have any tape? Yeah. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Let's try. I mean, it is nice. It's, a, it's science, and that's the important thing. Okay. Let's take into consideration how old I was. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, last week, right? Yeah. <laughs> little boys do a lot of things. You know, take a magnifying glass, burn ants. Yep. Yeah, it's just, boys are weird. It's probably also the thing that drives men to invent things. I don't know how, but, you know, it's one of those things. That's pretty cool, right? Um, there's a neuron B that I didn't talk about here, Simon, that it was never in the charts there that I have, the infographics for the uh, slides. But it's detecting if the, if the, the um, wings are up, or down, and by doing that, it can, it can determine if the moth, if the bat, sorry, is above or below as well. So now we get three-dimensional space stuff. This is something you could probably, if you had some little bit of electronic skills, um, you could probably make this with parts you would get at Radio Shack. I'm sorry, the source by Circuit City. <laughs> You really could. I mean, this is not a complicated piece of wiring, right? So this is an amazing thing. It shows you how evolution can select for a very specific thing. This is really all that this bat's ner moth nervous system does. I thought all it does, but it's only got well. I'm going to say it's not a hundred thousand. So let's call it ten thousand turns, and it's not ten thousand. But it's, again, using words of magnitude, it's something between 10 and 100,000 neurons. This is not an exceedingly complicated animal. But it's got a whole neural network, basically, that does nothing but detect where bats are. That's pretty important, because bats eat them. OK. Questions about that? Why do you see but I think it's one of those things that makes you really marvel, at least for me, it's one of those things that really makes you marvel at evolution. Because it is so damn simple. It's such a simple mechanism. Right? But it can detect in three-dimensional space, distance and direction. It's doing vector mathematics in three dimensions that many of us have trouble doing in math. 
This thing's nervous system does it with like six neurons. A lot of us have trouble doing that with 10 to the 14th of them. Okay. So Hubel and Weasel, uh, David Hubel just died, found cells in a rat and a cat cortex that detect line orientations. Uh, this is actually from the original paper. But that's why it looks so poor because it's I did enlarge it there. But if you look at this, we have a line orientation like this, or a line straight up and down, or a line off on that angle. And you can see when it fires. This cell, it fires, we have a line going, I guess, what's that? At uh, 45, 15 degrees. Yeah. And they won a Nobel Prize for this, which is why I mentioned the Swedish Kings. Uh, that's Hubel on the left, who just died. One of the high points of my life was getting a little note from him. Used to be, that job now when you find a paper, how do you get it to copy? You click. And there it is. Uh, PDFs. Used to be when you found an interesting title, you would write a little note to the author and they'd send you a nice copy. Now they just give you a PDF you can put on your web page, right? But they used to say, give you like 200 copies and you'd mail them out to people and they'd request them. And my favorite one ever was I got one, I got one from him. And it's like, this guy won a Nobel Prize and he wants to read something I wrote. And I'm sure it was just his secretary. Thought, well, David will find this one interesting. Or maybe it's like, this is horrible. It's, it's what David thinks. But I always kind of hoped it was the former and not the latter. But you get this, you know, it's just David Hubel. And it's afterwards, you know, FRS, Fellow Royal Society. Yeah, that's cool. And then, you know, I was hoping it would say TGWTNP, the guy that won the Nobel Prize, didn't say that. <laughs> that's kind of cool, Nobel Prize and all. I got my master's degree from that, the Nobel Prize in, in physics. I was at U of T. When I, when I got my master's, he's, he, he hooded me. And I had nothing clever to say to him. Congratulations, he said, and I'm like, oh, my God, that was an idiot. Whereas Western, my undergrad, when you, win the, when, you, when you get your degree, they give you a, they, they clasp your hand, it's very formal, much more formal than here. You kneel down, and you bow your head down, and you put your hands over your head, it's much more like it is at Oxford or Cambridge, and they cla clasp your hands and say, degree of man admitted, which means I admit you to your degree. And I thought, this is my time to bring up the Latin. So I said, ego sum volde commodus. I looked at me and said, oh, you don't speak Latin. That means I'm very moved. Okay, move on. <laughs> so we probably, if we network these together, and you guys in brain behavior were talking this just the other day, if we network these things together, we can recognize something. <coughs> like a triangle. was the example I was using the other day, brain behavior. So if you've got a line... I still think I can use this better. It's almost right. Um, if we have a cell that fires at this direction, one that fires at that direction, and one that fires like that, they all fire at the same time and synapse onto the triangle cell. Now we can recognize triangles. Now, it's a little more complicated than that, but not a whole lot more. It's almost certainly how we recognize objects. Almost certainly have to recognize objects. 
And that, that's in a cat, by the way. That's not in a human. You don't do a lot of single cell recording for humans. You have to drill holes in their heads. Most people are opposed to that. Damn ethics communities. <laughs> when they know someone who wins Nobel Prize. I mean, I'm never going to win one. It's not going to happen. For all your great podcasts. Like, just, that's not that word. Nobel Prize in podcasting. But I want to just know a guy, and I know some of you should get one. Like, Brendan Miller should get one, and then I can go, well, I hung it for Yeah. Maybe Brendan Nobel. You know. That off, really. Um... So what about more complicated things? Well, David Parrott, who works at University of St. Andrews, works a lot at Western. There's a lot of work with people at UWO, or as they now call it, Western University, because they had to rebrand it. Because no one had heard of UWO or something. Oh, my alma mater. Western University. It's not West. It's not West. It's, it's, it's in no. Stupid. So, Dave Parrott is really an interesting guy. Um, and there's a picture of him about 10 years ago. And that's actually, you know, wearing silver pants. Like, that's just the kind of thing he does. That's awesome. Yeah, that's just, that's how he, that's how he rolls. And I mean, I met him first. Seeing a talk by him is what convinced me to do this for a living. I was in third year, I was working at uh, a summer insert. You know that? You know, you work in a lab and you do research. And so I was doing this, and there was a sign up, and it said, Dr. David Parrott, FRS. And the Federal Royal Society, they ask you to join. You must be an old guy. And it's, you know, University of St. Andrews in Scotland is like Cambridge or Oxford, the old universities of, like, it's found in, like, I don't know, the year with three digits. <laughs> and it looks out under the St. Andrews, the golf course, where they play the British Open. A friend of mine taught there for a while. So it was, the real perk was being able to just play golf there. So I'm thinking this would be great. This, this guy comes, this is 1987. This guy was probably in his early 30s now. And he comes out and he's got on um, purple pants and motorcycle boots up to here, the chains hanging off of him, which so, so was I wearing, coincidentally, at that time. By the way, quite that way. And he had on a black leather jacket and he had a green mohawk. And he comes up and says, Lord, let me talk about some single show recording and some monkeys. And I thought, this is, this is the greatest job in the world. No one cares how you can wear. You can do cool things with monkeys. That's it. I'm going to do this for a little bit. And he talked about this stuff where they were putting feature, they were sort of putting single cell recordings, so they were putting microelectrodes into monkey brains. These are rhesus monkeys, if I'm not mistaken. And they have cells in their cortex, in my simple little back here, they only respond to individual monkeys. So they show them a picture of a monkey, a slide. This is pre-computer days. They show them literally, well, there were computers, but they weren't were using it for experiments. Uh, so they show the monkey a slide of one of the monkeys it knew in the colony, monkeys that they lived in, like that TV show, The Colony, it's a whole other thing. A colony of monkeys. And they would have, like, let's say it's a picture of Steve the monkey. I just made up that name. I don't know if one named Steve. 
and it would only fire when they showed pictures of Steve. It would not fire when they shot Eddie the monkey or Kenny the monkey. Only Steve. That's pretty neat. This is sort of like the idea of a grandmother cell. People used to joke when they first found out about Hubel and Weasel, the idea of the single cells in a, in, a, in a network. Oh, does that mean we recognize our grandmother by a bunch of cells that synapse onto the grandmother's cell? What a stupid idea. Yes, it does. And here's your evidence. That's the beautiful thing. The people who that stupid. How could that work? Which is like reading letters to the editor of Nature, except the words are better. And there's references. <laughs> but Dave Parrott found this, so we now are pretty sure. Yeah, it's not going to be a single cell thing, but one cell dies. It's like, where are you, Grandma? I can't tell. <laughs> and this has got to be this hierarchical network, and that's what's called the Hewlett Jackson principle, right? That's the idea that neural systems are hierarchical and parallel. So things are happening all at once, but at different levels. Levels. So this is really cool stuff because it now is giving us the idea of how using a very simple system of feature detectors we could eventually get a recognize complex objects. The cool thing about this is if you show these monkeys Monkeys upside down, they don't recognize it. The cell doesn't fire. It's only right side up. And you might think, well, that's odd. Don't monkeys hang upside down all the time and stuff? Yeah, they do, but there's a difference. We, when, when we see a picture of a face, two eyes, Nose, mouth, not mouth, nose, two eyes. And this is true within all mammals. <laughs> Weird thing is, if you train birds to detect faces, they can detect upside down faces no problem. <clears throat> the only one they have trouble with upside down faces is people. There's something special about human faces. We are the ultimate primate looking primate. We're the primateists of all the primates. <laughs> yes, we win, we win something. But have you, ever, have you ever seen the Thatcher effect? Do you know about that? Well, just fire it up. I'll do a quick, quick internet. I'll do some internet here. Okay. Images. We'll Google image search. And there's the original. So if you look at this, <laughs> that doesn't look weird so much. There's nothing that strikes you when you go, ah! <laughs> that one there is disturbing, right? It's a Stephen King look. And it was originally done, they called it the Thatcher effect because it was with pictures of Margaret Thatcher. That's why it's called the Thatcher effect. If, if somebody else had won the, 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 the Prime Minister of the UK, it would have been the somebody else effect. But the name used it was done in Britain, so these pictures of, of Margaret Thatcher, I, I imagine they also reflected what most academics were entirely fond of her. So there's something special about faces in the right orientation. This should tell us something about evolution, and this is true again, think about this, in our 
Pretty distant relatives. Macaques, monkeys, and in ourselves. So that should tell us something about ourselves and about our, our close relatives. What's it doing there? Okay. And that's that there's something important about recognizing faces. So let's look at this from an evolutionary angle. As a human, as a monkey, as a chimp, almost certainly then, because if it's preserved in humans and monkeys, our closer relatives are going to be in there too. What's so special about faces? Well, we have to be able to detect individuals. We're social animals. And think about all the things people do. Remember we talked today about Hamilton, about how people, for example, and chimps and others, <coughs> excuse me, other social primates, which most of them are, have to be able to detect in individuals if they're related to them. That's one thing. That's how we could get some sort of altruistic behavior. They also, or they have to be able to detect that if I've done something nice for you, you'll do something nice for me. Detect basically past interactions. How am I going to do that? The one way that's going to be different among every member of the species is your face. And I'll also be able to detect emotion in your face, intention, communication. So this probably explains why we have this complicated mechanism. Us basically being primates in general. Questions about that? It's quite neat stuff. So hippocampus, that quote at the top of the slide, the hippocampus, everybody's playground, is a quote that a friend of mine, Rob, and he's never a t-shirt. Because everybody always thinks hippocampus. And the running joke among everyone is, where's that happen? Ah, hippocampus. Sit down in the back of his shirt, and on the front, it just had a fade wave, brain wave. It was a, it's one of those shirts that only very few people get the joke. So, in Olden Samuelson in 1976, they came up with this maze, the radio maze. Okay? The eight arm radio maze. Imagine the central platform and eight arms radiating out from the central platform with the spokes of the wheel. So this means you can put food at the end of the arms. That's those little cups are. And then the rat, this is what they originally tested in the rat, goes out and finds food. In animal memory research, we talk about two kinds of memory. We talk about working memory and reference memory. Working memory is memory that's necessary for completing a single trial of a given task. Okay? Reference memory is remembering how to complete the task, the rules of the game. So what is the working memory part? Now, that's the easier one. What's the reference memory part of the eight-arm maze? Remember, you can put food at the end of the arms. Let's say we put food at the end of four of the arms, and we'll leave four of the arms empty. What's the, what's the reference memory part of this task? The rules of the game, basically. 
Yeah, uh, Jeff. Uh, like maybe being able to see something in the room outside of the maze and being able to reference like the foods at the end of this path. So and that's near the door. So if yeah. I go in the direction of the door, it would be mm -hmm. Yeah. Matthew, you see something similar? Go down the right arm. Go down the right arm. Go down the correct <coughs> arms. The ones that have food. Yeah. That's right. So if we bait this one, this one, this one, and that one, remembering that those four always have food, that's reference memory. Because it's the same all the time. Those are the rules. What's the working memory component then? That's, remember, that's for completing a given trial. What's the working memory part of this? Anyone? Anyone? That's still working, that's still reference memory. Because that's a rule of the game. It's always like that. I'm sorry? Which ones you've been down so far in this trial? Correct. Ones I've been down. Or ones I haven't been down. Ones I haven't been down yet could be either. And in fact, the cool thing is halfway through, they switch over from ones I've been down to ones I haven't been down because the list is short, which is really neat. Um, it's a very complicated set of experiments by Bill Roberts, and we'll go into that. But if we lesion hippocampus in rats, this is after they've learned the task, by the way, okay? You, they're never going to learn it if you just take their hippocampus away in the first place. But you teach them the task, they get good at it, and rats get good at these kind of tasks very quickly. Within a week of running once a day, they're perfect at this. Then we lesion hippocampus, rat goes down an arm, gets a food arm, gets some food, fine. Goes down another arm, gets a food arm, gets some food. Goes down another arm, oh, it's already been down that arm, but it can't remember it's just been down that arm. Its working memory has been destroyed. Reference memory is intact. So reference memory is intact, working memory is destroyed in this case. So they don't affect reference memory, they affect working memory. This is the same with the Morris water maze. The Morris water maze is kind of cool. It's the same kind of idea as this, except that instead of getting food, the animal's getting, it goes for a swim, and rats don't like to swim. They can, so cats, right? Cats can swim. Cats would rather not swim. <clears throat> Dogs in the other hand say, yeah, sure, whatever. Is there a chance I'll get a stick into this? <laughs> you know, dogs are great. Rats are more like, no, I really, really, seriously? Okay, you're like a thousand times the size of me. Great, put me in a pool. And you put them in this pool, and it's not a big pool. You don't put them in an Olympic size. Well, you could, but that would just be stupid. That's a big rant. First, you have to build an Olympic size. <laughs> it's all for science! <laughs> so you build this pool about this big around, a little more than a meter. Diameter. Uh, yeah, diameter. Um, and you make it 10 centimeters deep. Deep enough so the rat can't get rest in the bottom. It won't be a rat and you rat shortly. Because you fill it with liquid. But you do make platforms that are just below the surface. If it's not the surface, it's on the platform, it's fine. They like the platform. 
you think, well, maybe they, maybe they can detect it. They can see it. Not if you use uh, something opaque as a liquid. And they typically use skim milk. Because it's but the only good thing that skim milk, that's the only thing it has going for it. <laughs> okay, it's, just, it's a waste of, it's not food. It's not, it's like, look, if you're going to drink milk, just drink milk. Unless you're lactose intolerant. That's different. I don't want to, that's not what I'm talking about. You might want to watch skim milk. Little bit. You know, I put skim milk in my coffee. Oh, that tablespoon of coffee, the milk you put in your coffee, has that made, made you balloon up to 450? Come on. Calm down. Live a little. I put whipping cream in my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I put heavy cream in my coffee. It's a tablespoon. It's not a little bit. It tastes good. It just it tastes good. I need skim milk. It's not even food. It's like, it's like margarine. It's another one of those. It's not food. Anyway. Milk isn't supposed to have a blue tinge. And skim milk has a bluish hue. <laughs> just saying. There's no blue food. Well, some of those sort of heirloom potatoes. Anyway, so you fill this thing with skim milk because if this rat can't see the, the, the little platform, it swoops around and lands on the platform and gets it. And in fact, within a couple of days, they're very quick at this. No matter where you start them from, and you don't just throw them in like you gently put them in, and they swim and they get to the platform right away. Same thing happens here. They can learn. Now, one of the things you can do is, today I'm going to move the platform. So at the very beginning of the day, the rat swims around, looks at the platform, finds it, then you put it back in, and he goes right for the platform. Leaves you the campus, he swims around again, oh, I can't, where's the platform? I have no idea. I don't have a hippocampus. Right? And you might think, why don't you use real milk for this? Because it's even more opaque, because it's harder to clean off the rats. Considering there's nothing in skim milk, you just put them under a heat lamp, dry them off, they're fine. If you used, they turn it, you got like little rat cheese hair things. It would be weird. Why did I mention that? <laughs> Don't know. Okay. So in hippocampus, there are place cells. Now, Keith and Nadell, in a book called Hippocampus as a Cognitive Map, it's a bestseller. You know the nice thing about that book? If, if anybody here is interested in hippocampal stuff and wants it for their paper, that book is in the public domain now. They've got the rights, and you can download it all over the internet, and they don't care. They want you to. Some of the copyright lapsed, and they just said, fine, good. Internet, would you like it? I think it's very cool. You know. So they're kind of like Joss Wheaton, really. Um, oh, he's in shields on. Did you watch that? Anyway, um, they found cells in hippocampus that actually respond. They only fire when a rat is in a certain place. Place cells. Okay? In a certain spatial location. Hippocampus is important for space. In rats. And in us, it does something different. Um, it does, it's important in space because of other things. In humans, by the way, though, it's interesting that if you compare London cab drivers, so London, England, versus normal people, same age. Normal people. It's the <laughs> cab drivers. They're so normal. Um, randomly selected non-cab non drivers. Uh, cab drivers have a larger hippocampus. 
Now, to become a London cabbie, you have to, well, to become a cabbie in any bigger city, you have to pass a test. You know where streets are, things like that. And London, England, complicated system of streets. <laughs> what with the, the streets were there because that's where the cows went. And they didn't go in a, a nice grid pattern. And these guys have bigger hippocampus than you'd expect. Pretty amazing. And we can work under the assumption that it isn't that, that it probably happened after they became caddies. That it's not like they were destined to be caddies. <laughs> <laughs> if you're already UK, the greatest thing in the world is to go to one of the cabs, not a regular little cab, those big cabs make you think you're in a World War II movie. They're just the greatest thing ever. You go in the back, there's like, as big as this room. It's huge. The world isn't clearly as simple as O'Keefe and Adele thought, that it's just a, it is a cognitive map, but it's really important for spatial things. So in food storing birds, and I know you know about this, in parents, corbins, and sigints, that's chickadees and titmice, that's crows and nut, nut, uh, crackers, and that's not hatches, store food. I know you know that because I told you. Um, most songbirds leave for the winter. Most songbirds go, they, they migrate. Right? They go south unless they're from the southern hemisphere, then they go north. These guys don't, they hang out and store food. And their lives depend on it. Right? A chickadee has weighs 12 grams. And if it doesn't eat in the morning, like about half an hour after it wakes up, it dies. So they have to get food right away. And they do. They, what they do when they wake up is they, first thing they do is they go find some seeds they hid yesterday or the last few days, eat them. Then they go find more seeds and hide them in the coming days. Pretty amazing. Corbett's the Clark's Nutcracker. They store 30,000 seeds in the fall, recover 25,000 of them up to six months later. Something none of us can do in a 40-kilometer radius. So without that stored food, they just die. Now, the Clark's Nutcracker is a pretty special animal because, and I showed you the, the, the Al Camel holding the Clark's Nutcracker. They have a whole suite of adaptations that allow them to breed earlier than other, other bird species because they have this big bunch of stored food all over the place. So it's pretty, they're pretty special. So this is also true of blue jays or whatever. That shouldn't say we will. We have talked about There are some interesting cognitive differences that we talked about. So there's a, there's a chickadee. It's a black cat chickadee. You've seen those. There's a Clark's Nutcracker. It's Baron Lord John Sir Krebs. All kinds of things in his name. Uh, there's Dave Sherry, uh, and that's some members of his lab. But probably eight years ago, I mentioned I got that old picture because my friend Mike Boisvert's in that picture. I remember I've told you before. Sometimes I make jokes, and they're just for me and another guy. And I tell them him, tell, email them to him. That's it. And that's Rob Hampton, who was in. We were in grad school together. That's him on his honeymoon in like Zambia or something holding a warthog skull. Because <laughs> that's what Rob would do on a honeymoon. Uh, and that's Sarah Shuttleworth, our PhD advisor, uh, University of Toronto, though right there, she's walking down the South Parks Road in Oxford. If I was standing over here, I'd get the zoology. Where he is. No, he's at Jesus College now. 
He's the principal of Jesus College, Oxford. And he's a great email address, principal at Jesus. Great email a few years ago. And Sarah won an award and he helped us nominate her. He's like, he's a baron and a knight and a lord. And I didn't know how to, I hadn't talked to him in 20 years. But I used to just know him as this guy, John. So I just emailed him and said, hey, John. Because <laughs> I didn't know what the hell else to write. He said, oh, David, splendid. Because he actually talked like that. Splendid. It's quite. <laughs> I don't think he ever said quite. He did want to say my work, he, I was my, my master's research, I'd been there for six months, and he was visiting our lab, and he said, this is brilliant. And Sarah looked at him and said, yeah, his birds are brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the cool things, this is both Sherry and Elsie Sunday, Sherry in the bottom left there, and John Krebs and his group, they figured out the hippocampal volume, when corrected for weight, is larger in food sores than in non sores And the same stuff was found by Al Camel's group, you saw Al a couple days ago, about corvids. So here's a couple of graphs. They're basically the same graph, but just represented differently. Um, you can see there's the food sores and the non stores This is their amount of uh, hippocampal volume, and this is their telencephalon volume, which is basically brain volume. So of course, this hippocampal volume, as brain volume goes up, hippocampal volume goes up, but that amount of brain volume that's taken up by hippocampus is bigger, it's bigger in a store than it is in a non-store. Right? So what's happened is hippocampus has been selected for being bigger because it's driving, it's controlling the memory part, which they depend on, their lives depend on. You can see this is hippocampus right here, yeah, that chicken. You can see the clear vitamin here. It's got really dense amount of cells. So it's not, it's not only more volume, it's also more cells. It's also more actual neurons. And that dividing line, you can just clearly see, it's not as clear in a non-storing bird. It's there, it's part of the brain, but it's not nearly as obvious. And that's just a slice of a chicken bird. Well, the question you would ask then is, if they depend more on stored food, do they have a bigger hippocampus? Well, this is some work done as Rob Hampton I showed you. So Hampton, Sherry, Shuttleworth, Kerbal, and Ivy. Sounds like a really strange law firm. Um, Rob went down to uh, Arizona and camped in the, in the mountains for six weeks in the winter. Now, most people think of Arizona being hot, or Arizona Nevada. There's a lot of Arizona, American Southwest. But if you get up in the mountains, it's cold. So he was camping at a field station. What was um, And capturing birds. And he built an aviary. You wanted me to come with what comes? No. I don't want to go camp for six weeks. You go yourself. That would be great. I remember when he, when he got back, I didn't know he was back yet. He actually jumped on, like, he jumped me from behind and said, Let's go for Chinese food. <laughs> he didn't eat, you know, cans of beans for six weeks. Brought back these birds, and 
We look at the black cap chickadee versus the Mexican chickadee and the bridal titmouse. We were hoping, in fact, these guys would store food because there's a lot more food and it's not, it's not all... Their, their habitat isn't nearly as uh, devoid of food in the winter as, as ours is up here for the black cap chicken. Turned out they both store food, but not as much as the black cap. And if you take a look at their hippocampus divided telencephalon, chickadee bigger than these two. Do they rely more on stored food? This is the mean number of caches they make in there. This was in a cage. So they're just in a cage with this big, these individual birds, and you just have little blocks of wood that have holes in them, and the birds will store food. Birds will store food, food stores will store food anywhere. If you've got baby ones that you're raising by hand, they don't store it. They just pick it up and put it somewhere else. They just put it, pick it up here and drop it here. It's like they're starting to store food. That's what they have to do. And yeah, you can see this is uh, in an aviary. Yes, this is the aviary data. This is the within the home cage data. You can see again, they store more than they do the mate. So they go together, the storing and the brain specialization. Do they use hippocampus to recover their, their caches? Well, Sherry and Vaccarino, um, they let birds store food and recover it in a lab for an easy task. They lesion hippocampus of half of the birds. They still searched for the food they stored. They still searched for the food. But they couldn't find it. So they'd store food, so that's not controlled by hippocampus, but they couldn't recover it, because that's memory, and that's hippocampus loaded task. So you can see here, pre-surgery control groups of lesion. This is visits to um, cache sites, and this is ones that, that, that don't have food, and these ones that do have food. Don't have food, oh look, they just, they can't find anything. I'm just gonna fly around, I have no clue. They still store food though. One of the ideas here is the hippocampus, not unlike certain parts of the uh, male bird brain, uh, male songbird brain grows in the spring and shrinks in the winter. Remember, hippocampus, the brains are expensive. So in the song control centers in, 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 in male songbirds, because males do the singing, not the females, shrink in the, in the winter because they don't sing then, but grow in the spring, because they sing. You don't hear bird song anymore out there, now you'll hear bird calls. But if you're thinking, say, of chickadees, you're hearing chickadee dee dee, you're not hearing, that's not, because that's chickadee song. You're just hearing chickadee dee dee, the chickadee call. Well, what if, what if, because they rely on stored food, maybe hippocampus shrinks and grows? And Fernando Nottebaum in his lab at Cornell um, found that. The hippocampus shrinks and grows depending upon the time of year. The only problem is no one's replicated that. So that's, not, you know, that's a big problem. It wouldn't surprise me, it seems to happen in human hippocampus, that that's one of the few places where we actually grow neurons in central nervous system is in dentate gyrus hippocampus. So they probably do, it probably does grow and shrink it, but nobody seems to have found it again. I don't think Fernando and his group were lying. 
They're pretty good scientists, and also they have no reason, you know, they're already famous. So, I don't know what it is. It's also hard work to do. <coughs> now, brown-headed cowbirds we talked about the other day. Sherry Jacobs and Gollin. So there's Dave Sherry, and this is your brown-headed cowbird. It's called a brown-headed cowbird because it's a cowbird that's a note the brown head. <laughs> Birds are pretty easily named, right? You know, they just say, this is the that, it's... This is the yellow-bellied sap sucker. <laughs> this is yellow-bellied and it sucks sap. It's nice. It's not like other animals that have stupid names like hippopotamus. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, should be called great big thing that just hangs out in by water holes in Africa. That's not a good name. So cowboys and nest parasites talked about this the other day. Yeah. But in this class? Yes. Yeah. It all runs together at some point. <laughs> um, yeah. So the most remember where the possible hosts, nests are, and the males don't. So guess what? I told you this the other day. Here's the data. We've got red-winged uh, blackbird, which is out. This is outside the cowbird. This is a control species. We've got a grackle. And a grackle is a closely related bird, but not a cowbird. Okay? Yeah, that one doesn't make any sense. Red wing blackbird, perfect grackle. It's just like some names, some kind of, it's a noise. That was eating popcorn when it was a bird. Grackle, grackle. Is that a sound you make popcorn? I don't know. I was thinking of Cracker Jack or something, I guess. I don't know. Cracker Jack. That's popcorn and peanuts and pieces of bird in a delicious caramel. Something dry at the area to have on diners, dragons, and chocolate. Here's a guy putting bird parts in his popcorn. So, those glasses backwards. That's money. They went downtown. So, those delayed reaction jokes and sort of I lobbed that grenade and then it took five or six seconds and then you got it. Okay. Um, so here's the thing, this is quite nice because in fact we go to the outgroup, Red Wing Blackbird, and we go to something that's pretty close to the eagle, Catherine Grackle, but not a cowbird, it doesn't show the difference, the male-female difference. It only shows up in the females, uh, sorry, in the, in the cowbirds and then male-female difference. I'm not going to go too much into that. The behavioral stuff's been really hard to do with those animals. I think I was telling you the other day that we were trying to come up with ways, to, Dave Sherry and I, ways to do this, and it's just, because it's not about food. It's easy to get animals to do things for food. This is, a, it's been a hard one so far. And me and Mike Boisvert actually tried to do some stuff using computer touch screens and pecking and all this stuff. Cowards, wild, wild animals are hard to work with, right? And these ones, one day Mike called me, he was a fourth-year honor student in Western, he called me and he said, uh, yeah, Dave, I've got a problem. Uh, I think there's worms all over the birds. And I said, okay. And I came in the next day and they were everywhere. We had to let the birds go because they were going to infect every animal in the university. We would have got... So, to conclude, the nervous system controls behavior and behavior acts, sorry, evolution acts on the behavior of the phenotype. There are four evolution acts on the nervous system. I think the most elegant story here is the food story story. And that's not just because partially that was something that was my doing. Well, it's partially that. 
Um, but that's why it's so elegant, man. It's also because really it does show the evolutionary angle, the neural angle, and the behavioral angle all coming together as one rich task. Questions? Things have been okay for me, except that I'm a zombie now. I really wish you'd let us in. I think I speak for all of us when I say I understand why you folks might hesitate to submit to our demand. But here's an FYI. I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside and eat your brains. I don't wanna nitpick, Tom, but is this really? Spend your whole life locked inside a mall Maybe that's okay for now But someday you'll be out of food and guns And you'll have to make the call I'm not surprised to see you haven't thought it through enough You never had the head for all that bigger but Tom, that's what I do, and I plan on eating you slowly. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're not unreasonable. I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. And we'll put 
I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. Open up the doors We'll all come inside and eat your brains This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.